so far I've been getting pretty good responses on the stuff I've been dealing with Calvinism um, online, and I'm, I'm happy to hear that. And I've been getting good responses from you guys, and that means a lot to me as well. Um, but today we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 9. Um, I don't think that this passage teaches Calvinism, um, but what I want to do is, is this. Um, my, my wife told me um, that she's heard this, this passage taught, and there's some of the verses in, in Romans 9 where she goes, I've never heard someone explain this you know, in a way that made sense to me. And there's just some difficult passages. And so what I want to do is tackle the hard passages and the hard verses that are in Romans 9. And I want to do this, even though it's going to be, I'm going to offer you the non-Calvinist interpretation of that. I want to do it thoughtfully, carefully, like brothers in fellowship. With, with my, they're my Calvinist friends, my Calvinist brothers and sisters. And so we're just wrestling with these topics that should not divide us. We're trying to understand Romans 9. And this is the chapter. Romans 9 is the chapter when someone says, so you're not a Calvinist. And I go, no, I'm not a Calvinist. And they say, what do you do with Romans 9? This is just, it's just the natural thing to, to pop up. Um, so I want to remind us of one thing before we jump into the text, which is what Peter said about Paul's writings. Peter wrote about Paul's writings, and he said that in Paul's writings, there are some things that are hard to understand. Now, Peter was a smart guy. And he knew the gospel, and he knew the truth of those things, but he also knew that some of the stuff Paul wrote was challenging topics. He didn't shy from them, but it becomes difficult to understand. So we're going to labor to comprehend some of the harder parts of Romans 9. I don't want to dodge them. And I encourage you guys during Q&A, hit me up, go ahead and ask me those questions if you feel as though you, they've been unanswered through the course of, of teaching. I'm not going to be offended by that. I'm not going to think you're attacking me. Or, and even if you were totally disagreeing with me, I'm really okay with that. Um, we, we, we believe this text is God's authoritative word, not every little thing I say. And so we can, we can seek wisdom on those things. Okay, so Romans 9 through 11, actually, not just Romans 9, but Romans 9 through 11, this is a topically cohesive section. Romans 9 through 11, these three chapters, it's about the Jewish people. Um, it answers a few interesting questions, like, why is it that the Jews didn't all receive Jesus as Messiah? Why didn't they accept him? If he's the Messiah, if he's prophesied in the Old Testament, why did they not all receive him? That's a natural question to ask. Um, what is God doing through this, this rebellion of, in large part, of the, of the Jewish people against Jesus? Um, and what is God's plan for Israel in the future? We'll get there in Romans 11. So as you're going through the, the passage, Romans 9 through 11, we have to realize that Paul is correcting Jewish popular religious teaching of his time. And what he's doing is he's actually bringing in Old Testament teaching to do that. So he's saying, you know, like what Jesus said. Jesus goes, you've heard it said. And then he would quote maybe a, a misapplication or misunderstanding or a partial understanding of, of the Old Testament. Then he would explain it more fully. He's correcting sort of the popular religion of his day with careful, thoughtful teaching of his own. And that is what Paul's doing. But, but you have to understand, it's super important to Paul that everything he corrects as far as this Jewish thinking goes, that he does it with Old Testament scriptures. Now, this is a great um, way to read Romans. And I'd recommend it. Go through Romans sometime on your own and read it as if you were a Jewish person, which is easy if you are. Right? That's even easier. But read it as if you're a Gentile, if you're non-Jew, read it as if you were Jewish thinking. How would I understand this if I was Jewish? And then you'll make more sense of why he brings up certain issues and certain topics because they're natural to the Jewish person to wonder about those issues. Um, 
some people see uh, Romans 9 through 11 as like a, a giant parenthetical section. Like it just kind of is plopped in the middle of Romans. It doesn't really fit exactly. He's just kind of randomly saying, let's just talk about Jewish issues and Gentile issues and put it right here. I used to see it that way when I was younger. And, but now that I'm old and wise, um, I see it as a natural result of going through the book of Romans. I mean, if you read Romans like, a, like maybe a, a Gentile tends to, where you ignore certain verses and you gravitate towards others, you'll see 9 through 11 as, why is he talking about this? But if you read it more thoughtfully, you'll understand. So let me give you an example um, of how this whole Jew-Gentile, these issues of Jews and Gentiles, goes through the whole book of Romans. So I'll quote a few passages. In Romans chapter 1, he starts off by introducing uh, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we've received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations, for his name among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah. So he's like, Jesus is the Old Testament, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's the Messiah of the Jews, and he's out here for all nations to receive. So he's already, in the beginning, he's talking about these Jewish Gentile issues, isn't he? In Romans 1 verse 16, you know the first part of this verse, but do you know the last part? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and also for the Greek. So he's dealing with this Jewish and, and Gentile, Jew-Greek Jew issues. Uh, Romans 2, now on to chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, it says, But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, that's what comes upon them, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to who, uh, everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there's no partiality with God. So he's getting these Jewish-Gentile issues, which as a Gentile, you're like, oh, what's the point? But to the Jew, I think it's more natural to go, no, this needs to be explained. God, you have a chosen people, Israel. Then all of a sudden, all these Gentiles are coming under Messiah. Like, explain this. Explain this. Romans uh, 2, verses 28 and 29, it says, for he's not a Jew who's one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he's a Jew who's one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So again, what, what, is, what is true Jewishness? What is God really looking for? Um, as the book progresses, as Romans progresses, we realize that it is essential, essential to Paul and the Holy Spirit, essential that the things that are being taught in Romans are grounded in Old Testament teachings. That these are not, this is not a new religion. This is a fulfillment of Old Testament teachings and prophecy. This is super important. And uh, I think many, many New Testament believers, they miss this because unlike the Jew who grew up with the Old Testament and then they come to the New and they go, ha ha, one is the fulfillment of the other. We often start with the New Testament and then we wonder how the Old Testament fits in with it. When really it's the other way around. You know, it's, it's, so it's essential to Paul and to the Holy Spirit that we realize that the New Testament gospel is an Old Testament truth. So in chapter 3, Paul uses the law to show that man is in need of grace. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And he uses the Old Testament, quoting it, to prove that this is the case. 
It's not a new thing. In chapter 4, he shows us that salvation by faith is an Old Testament reality. He talks about how Abraham was saved by faith, how David was saved by faith, and that his sins were forgiven. And he quotes Old Testament passages to support this idea. In chapter 5, he connects this whole concept to Adam. Jesus is the, the last Adam, and then, and then there's Adam, who would be the original Adam, right? The first Adam. And you have this, uh, this important thing that, that you, if you were writing Romans, you probably would just skip all this stuff, right? But, but Paul is, is showing us the New Testament fulfillment of Old Testament truths. In chapters 6 through 8, it gives us the spirit-filled life and deals with the law and how the law intersects with the gospel and, and, and what law are we under now as Christians, all that, all that sort of thing. Um, in chapters 9 through 11, then, Paul resolves like leftover issues, concerns that you would have as a Christian or a Jew who is saved or is considering Christianity, considering um, saying that Jesus is the real Messiah, you're thinking these things over, so you might be wondering about some things. Um, that's why chapters 9 through 11 quotes the Old Testament constantly. It just keeps quoting the Old Testament. It's to see God's prophetic plan in Israel and the gospel and to answer questions like, why haven't all the other Jews received Messiah? What, what is God's ultimate plan through this? What, you know, Show me in the Old Testament that this is legitimate. That's, that's what he's doing. Now, there's a Jewish mistake that um, was made by many of the Jews of Jesus' time. Their mistake was they made what Jesus was doing all about their earthly kingdom. Jesus, will you now set up your kingdom? They wanted Jesus to be that, that deliverer, right? That earthly, now, he will come and do that. But they made it all about that. And they missed out on the idea that he was giving them the bread of life. You know, He was giving them salvation, forgiveness. But there is also a mistake we can make nowadays. Our mistake is making everything in Romans 9 all about salvation and not realizing that some of it has to do with some other promises God has given Israel. Because there is, in the Old Testament, an awful lot God has told Israel. And if you're going to say that Jesus is the fulfillment of these things, then how does it connect? How does it connect to those promises? So um, that, that will make more sense as we go through Romans 9. But my, my point here is, let's not read Romans 9 thinking... Every single statement is automatically about salvation. Sometimes things are about selection, about what God is doing through Israel, how he chooses Israel as a people. And as I said when I started, right? Some things Paul writes are hard to understand. But hopefully it will make more sense. So what I want to do right now um, is read Romans 9. The whole thing. Why? Because this is what we're studying is this chapter. And if we can get it in, into your mind, what's going to happen as I read it is you'll have questions that pop up in your head. Oh, what about that? Wait, what? What's that? Oh, I get that. And you'll see the connection of the whole chapter. And then when we go through it verse by verse, it'll make more sense. So here we are, Romans 9.1. And again, I'm currently using the New King James Version. It says, I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is overall the eternally blessed God. Amen. But, it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac 
your seed shall be called. That is, those who are of the who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose, I've raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles." As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sebaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. But as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Um, You know, this is a chapter that was clearly written to be studied, not just not not merely read out loud. I mean, there was scripture reading done even in the early church. They would just read passages of scripture. But this is one where, you know, the people would hear it and be like, I need to think about that. <laughs> like, there's a lot going on in this chapter, so let's let's dig in. And again, I'm gonna I'm gonna, as it comes up, I'll target the issues of Calvinism because I think that this is, it, it's it's often ignored. Often teachers will teach around the issue. If they don't agree with Calvinism, they 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 sort of dodge those verses that the Calvinists would be like, hey man, this this teaches my theology. So I, I want to look at them and be thoughtful about it. Um, and hopefully it will answer your guys' questions, at least uh, to the best of my ability. So Romans 9.1, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. 
my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Who's that? Those are the Israelites, right? Those are, those are his fellow Jews by blood. They're, they're Jewish people. They're born um, as part of the same chosen people that he's part of. And he has great sorrow and continual grief in his heart when he thinks about them not being saved. And before we go on to any other theological stuff, I just want to stop for a second and say, like, some really good, I think, pastoral insights. Look at this. This is great sorrow, continual grief. Was Paul always happy? He has great sorrow and continual grief. Every time he thinks about his unsaved fellow Jewish men and women, he's just like, oh, it breaks my heart. The thing about about, um, comfort is that God comforts us, but he doesn't necessarily always remove the thing that causes us grief. He just provides us more comfort than the grief. That's it. It's just that I have more comfort than grief and I have more hope than sorrow. Um, But he doesn't remove it yet. There's a time coming where he'll wipe away every tear and everything's completely resolved. But that time is not just yet. Um, Verse 3, he says, For I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren. That's intense. I, I don't know that I could pray this about anybody because I'm like, would I wish myself to be lost for eternity that they might have salvation? Maybe this is a maybe this is a flaw in my own my own lack of love for others. Do I care this intensely about people? Paul, he's not going to do this. He could wish it, but it doesn't work because Paul, you're not a suitable sacrifice for them. The sacrifice has already come. What he's just showing us is the grief in his heart. It's not as though you could take somebody else's place in that sense. Jesus already took your place. You had to be rescued to start with. You want to jump back in? That's not going to help anybody. Um, so do you, do you care like this? Do you care like this? In fact, I would say this. If, if Paul cares this much about the Jews that are not saved, that don't know Messiah, isn't it safe to say that God cares that much? At least that much? Perhaps more? That, the, that God's grief over their lack of having accepted Christ, that that grief would be greater even than Paul's? I think so. I think so. It is an odd feature within Calvinism that it seems to imply that Paul wanted people saved that God doesn't want saved. Because if you have the the choosing of God saying, no, I, I want them saved and you I don't, then those unsaved Israelites are simply out of God's election unsaved. Whereas I, I think the biblical teaching would be God loves everybody. He wants all people saved, but he leaves he leaves this path through Christ and lets people make choices. And that is his predestined will to do that. Um, But I think we should apply this to our own unsaved family and the people in our culture that are unsaved. And if if you, like me, can say, Paul, I I I don't have the same heart you have for unsaved people, then maybe we need to make it a regular part of our prayer life. God, give me a heart that is burdened for people who don't know you. Give me a heart that cares and that is driven by compassion and love to proclaim the truths of Christ to people around me and not just to be like, well, those are their choices and that's the one thing they've decided. But to actually really, really honestly pray for more of that. Um, So verse 4, he says, who are Israelites to whom pertain? And he lists seven special things about Israel, about the Israelites. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises. And then, of course, you have of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. So that Jesus himself coming from them. 
But I want to focus on on really these issues. What what is the adoption? The adoption is is the idea that Israel was adopted nationally. This pertains to them. God adopted them. You know, in Exodus four twenty two, he says, "Israel's my son, my firstborn." Israel had a national relationship with God, a national relationship of adoption, um, and I think that that's the reference of to whom uh, pertains the adoption. The glory. Well, the glory of God was it was in the temple. He actually it was the only nation where God like placed His glory there in that nation with those people in the wilderness. His very glory led them forth in the pillar of fire and pill in the in the cloud. Um, and then we have God's glory coming to the temple in Jerusalem when it was finally built. So we've got God's glory there. I mean, this pertains to Israel. Isn't this wonderful? Then we have the covenants. This pertains to Israel. The covenants. There's a covenant with Abraham. Circumcision was the sign of this covenant, but it was a blessing on Abraham's descendants and that the world would be blessed through them, ultimately referring to Christ. There is the Mosaic covenant, which was the giving of the law, and it was it was sealed in blood, and there was a it was a conditional thing that they have to obey and they'll be blessed, disobey and they'll be cursed. But that was a covenant that God did with them. And then the the last one I'll mention is in Jeremiah 31. God talks about the new covenant, which Jesus fulfilled when he came and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. So there's multiple covenants that Israel had with God and the new covenant that pertains to them. It's, it is for them, for the Jew first and then the Greek. But the Gentiles by extension are brought into this covenant, but it was for Israel. It pertains to them. That's exciting. I mean, that's, that's really neat. Uh, I'd be really excited if I was Jewish. I'd be like, Look at my heritage, man. Look at so I'm just Irish. Like I don't know that that's that exciting of a heritage. I'm not sure. Well, certainly not in my family. Um, then number four, the giving of the law. The giving of the law. We, we sometimes do a disservice to God's law when we're like, boy, I'm glad I'm not under the law, aren't you? And we like chuckle and laugh. The law was good, man. The law was glorious. It protected Israel and it showed God's provision and, and, and guiding hand upon them. What other nation had laws from God? given to them. Um, it was an honor, not a burden. The failure is in man's ability to fulfill the law, man rebelling against God. That's the, the sorrow and the failure, but the law is good. Uh, number five, the service of God. Uh, that, that word, um, it, it refers to worship, and um, it could be related to the priesthood, the festivals, all the, uh, the ongoings at the temple, that this stuff is related to, to, to man being pleasing to God, where God goes, here's how you can serve me. Here's how you can follow me. Here's how you can be pleasing to me. And all these pictures of Christ that are in there and, and all this stuff. So these, are, these all pertain to Israel. And then finally, the promises. The promises. And this seems to be a generic promises. God has promised Israel a whole bunch of stuff. A whole bunch of stuff. And those promises still pertain to Israel. And Paul's talking about Israel according to the flesh. He, he goes, literally, there are physical descendants of Abraham and the promises of God are still upon them. And we'll get more into that as we get into to the next you know, two chapters after nine about God's future plans for Israel. This is that future, I think, the disciples so eagerly expected, thought Jesus would bring right away, but it was coming at the second coming of Christ, not the first coming. Just like Moses came twice, right? He came once, he was rejected, he came back again, he was received just like uh, Joseph was rejected by his brothers, then later he was received. I mean, we have, we have multiple people like Jephthah in the book of Judges was rejected by, by the Jews and then he was later received by them. The, the, these are pictures of how uh, Jesus 
rejected and then received the second time around. So these promises will come about. We'll, we'll get more into that later. But the, the context, what, what is Paul saying in verses 1 through 5? He's like, my heart breaks. I want to see these Jewish people walking with Jesus and knowing Messiah, Yeshua, Messiah. I want them to know him. And he says, and you know what? Look at all the glorious things. These are truths. God has given them the, the, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises. These are upon Israel. Jesus the Messiah, he came through Israel. So what about God's commitment to Israel? But they've largely not accepted the gospel. Not entirely, but largely. But what's up with that? So that's the issue. And then here comes the explanation, in, starting in verse 6. It is not that the word of God has taken no effect. So it's not like those promises don't work or don't apply. All those things are still true. But he starts to explain, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Israel, of course, is the name of a nation, but it's also the name of a guy. Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Everybody who's his child isn't necessarily of Israel. Part of that nation in God's uh, in, in God's purpose and plan and all that. So verse 7, it says, Nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. Now remember, it's important to Paul and the Holy Spirit to establish that the New Testament teachings are Old Testament truths. So here's what he's saying. Just because you're a child of Abraham, it doesn't mean you're part of Israel. Now the Jew would actually agree with this. They'd be like, of course, right? Because in Isaac, your seed should be called. Remember, Abraham didn't have just Isaac. Who else did he have? Ishmael. And, it, and Ishmael, let Ishmael live before you, Lord. And God says, no. No. In fact, let me read to you Genesis 17, verses 18 through 21. This is the Old Testament grounding for this. It says, And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you as inheriting the promise that you've given me. Then God said, No. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I've blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear you at the same time, at the set time next year. So, Abraham had other kids. In fact, it wasn't just Ishmael. He actually had six other boys after his wife died. He married a woman named Keturah. Uh, read Genesis 25. It's people, read Genesis 25. They never noticed that part. <laughs> but yeah, Abraham got, had another probably concubine kind of somewhere. I mean, we have marriage and not marriage, but they had these other things going on in between that were just weird. Um, anyway, so he has um, six other boys through Keturah. None of them are the inheritors of this promise. Just one of them. So even though it's like your descendants, it's not all of your descendants, is it? No, that's Paul's point. That's the point. The Old Testament makes it clear that not every descendant of Abraham is going to carry those, those things we mentioned. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises. Um, these are not all going to be in all of Abraham's descendants. In other words, what, we, what it says in verse 8 here, it's not according to the flesh, it's according to the promise. It's not about your genetics. It's about God's promise. So I can't just say, but I'm Jewish, 
and therefore I have salvation and therefore I'm in God's plan and I'm in God's purpose because we're the selected nation. Because even in the Old Testament, it didn't quite work just like that, did it? So it goes on. That was about, it's not about genetics. As one guy puts it, it's not about who your grandpa is. Kind of crude, but the idea is that yes, it's not about just that. Verse 10, though, let's read on. It says, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, now we're going down to Isaac's kid. Remember, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. So Abraham's kid, now it'll be Isaac's kid. Verse 11, For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. See, Rebecca is pregnant and she has twins inside of her womb. Twins. And God's like, I'm picking one, not the other. But I thought in Isaac, your seed would be called. All the descendants of Isaac for sure, right? But it's one and not the other. Because God has his sovereign choice that he's making. I think it's wise at this point in verse 11, not to assume election means the Calvinist doctrine of election. It's a word that means choice. It's a word that means choice, okay? Not every, even theologically important words don't always carry the same meaning throughout all the books of the Bible. You, you, you need to, it's just like in any other language. Sometimes you just use the word to use the word. Sometimes you mean the, the doctrine. Here it just seems to be. The purpose of God according to choice might stand, not of works. So the, um, this is different than the situation with Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac, it was like according to promise, not according to genes. You don't just have to have Abraham's blood. But with these two kids, it's a reversal of expectations. The older serves the younger. Because the one that even though it was slightly older, right? They're twins. But Esau is born first and then we have Jacob coming next. So he gets the birthright. He gets the inheritance. He gets the major major promise. That's how it's supposed to be. And God reverses it. Seemingly because he wants to. I mean, God just, that's how he wanted to do it. So God has a plan, he has an agenda, and he can narrow the promise while keeping the promise. And do you see how this, this kind of, if you're Jewish going, why is it that we have not all received Messiah? And then Paul starts showing you how not everyone who's descended from Abraham is necessarily an inheritor of these promises. There's a selection that's going on. To the Jewish reader, I think this is a big deal. How can they disagree that Jacob was chosen over Esau? You can't. You're like, of course he was, because if not, it's not even us. <laughs> this is Obviously, this was God's choice. It's an Old Testament truth that not all who are Abraham's children are heirs of Abraham's promises of the covenant. It's not really a bloodline. That's about Isaac, not a bloodline. But when it comes to Jacob, it's different. It's not about works. That's the point about Jacob. Verse 11, not of works. Is this about salvation? No. God, I don't think God was choosing Jacob and his descendants to be saved and Esau and his descendants to be condemned. That's where we make a mistake. We make it, every, every choice God makes is always about salvation, but that's not the case. Here it's about the carriers of the promise and the inheritance and the things that God's going to do through Abraham. So the Jews who would carry that namesake and carry that promise, it was not of works and it was not merely of blood. There's more to it than that. It's of God's ultimate choice. Verse 13. Here's the verse that messes people up. Here we go. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Um, 
This is the verse that messes people up, as I said. Uh, but let's view it in context. Here's some questions I have. I mean, first off, uh, what I've heard people say is, look, God chose Jacob for salvation, chose Esau for reprobation or to be, to be damned, to be condemned to hell. One is to be saved, one is to be condemned. Yeah, that's the way it is. God just chose one to love, chose one to hate, and that's up to God, and you have no choice in the matter. I think that that disagrees with the rest of the teachings of Scripture, but let's reasonably do this. Because I've heard a commentary, in fact, as I was studying this week, who they, they read this, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. And the commentator went, did God hate Esau? Of course not. I love when commentators say silly things and just add, of course, or obviously in front of it, as if that suddenly makes them right. If I'm going to tell you that this doesn't mean the, what, what the Calvinist perspective would be on it, which if you just read the verse in isolation, that would totally make sense. If I'm going to tell you that that's not what it means, I need to give you reasons to think that's not what it means. So let's, let's head down that path. Is this love and hate in the same sense as we casually think of it? Or is this love and hate in some other sense? And I think the answer is other sense. Let me explain. In Luke 14, 26, Jesus uses the concept love and hate in the same way or in a similar way, different than what you might normally think of it as. He says, Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Wait a minute. Jesus, I'm pretty sure you want me to love my wife. But in Luke 14, 26, you tell me to hate her or I cannot be your disciple. If you read the passage in Luke, you find that Jesus is saying, love me and by comparison, hate for others. Do I actually hate my mother, father, any of them? No, it has to do with a choice. I'm picking Jesus over them. That's the same context as Jacob I've loved. I picked him. Esau I hated. I didn't pick him. I picked one for the promise and not the other. And it's not even a salvation choice. That's the simplest way to understand Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And I can support it with Jesus' own words, but there's more. In Genesis 29, verses 30 and 31, love and hate are used in a similar sense. Same Hebrew words as well. It says, Then Jacob also went into Rachel. Remember, he had two wives, Rachel and Leah. He married Leah by accident. He married Rachel on purpose. It's very strange, weird stuff. I like how the Bible just records actually what happened and doesn't even pretend to sugarcoat people's lives. Um, so Jacob also went into Rachel and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. So he loved Rachel how much? More than Leah. But as we read on, and he served with Laban still another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Well, Mike, that just says unloved, but it's the same Hebrew word as hated, which is being quoted in uh, the Romans passage, Esau, I hated. Because that comes from Malachi. We'll go there next. Malachi 1. You'll want to turn there in your Bibles. Malachi chapter 1. So love and hate here in Genesis 29 has to be preferring one over the other. But it's not as though we're being told Jacob despised and hated Leah. Like he wanted to ruin her life and mess her up in every possible way. This is not the case. Simply a selection of one over the other. So what we're running into here is we don't, in modern English, use love and hate in these ways. So it's just a, I think it's a translational issue. It's that we just don't use the words like that too often. That's why in Genesis 30, 20, 29, 31, it translates that word hate as unloved instead of as hate. 
because they realize this is going to trip you up if you think it means he hated them. Because in the verse before it, it just says he loved Rachel more than Leah. Well, you wouldn't say that if he hated Leah. So let's go to Malachi chapter 1, because this is the passage that is quoted in Romans 9.13, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. This is where it comes from, Malachi 1. And love and hate are qualified in this passage, which means it's explained what is meant by love, what is meant by hate. Malachi 1, verses 1 through 5, it says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Who's, who's this burden to? Who's the message to? Israel. Is this Israel a person? No, this is Israel the nation. This is Malachi. This is the end of the end of the, the Old Testament here. We're talking over a thousand years later. Now he's talking to the nation Israel, not an individual Israel. It's a national thing here. And he says, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. Who is he loved? Israel. Corporately. It's a corporate love for the people Israel. Says, so I've loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? So he's going to answer the question, in what way have you loved us? God's saying, okay, I'll show you how I loved you. So what do you mean by love? Here's the exact example. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom, Edom is the nation from Esau, Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Is this about salvation? No, it's about a national choosing. I have loved Jacob or Israel, the nation. I have given them the promise of a perpetual future. Whereas Esau, his descendants aren't getting that promise that I gave through Abraham and carries down into a group of people. It's not going to Esau's people. So how have I not loved them? Well, look, for their sins, I'm judging them and they're going to have perpetual desolation. But you guys, I'm going to bring you back. I will restore you. I will bless you again. No matter how bad it is, you'll always have a future. Oh. This isn't this isn't isn't as simple as Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, end of story, close the book. It's a selection. It's corporate, and it's not about salvation. Um, otherwise, if you want to say it's about salvation, Jacob I loved, he saved, Esau I hated, they're unsaved. What you're saying is God chose to leave unsaved everybody who's a descendant of Esau. So here's a whole nation of people that aren't saved just simply by choice. But then you would say that all the nation of, of Jacob, they are saved. But that's argues against the very thing he's saying in Romans 9. So is it difficult slightly to understand? Maybe just a bit. But we have good reasons in Luke 14, 26, Genesis 29, and in Malachi 1 to say, this love-hate is not like the English words love-hate. It's really talking about selection one over the other, blessing of, of a future for one group of people over the other, and it's offering a point. Um, it's offering a point. So this may be meant to be an example of God's choice in election or in selection in a way that's really acceptable to the Jewish people that Paul's, I think, trying to write toward because he writes to the Jews and the Gentiles in the book of Romans. It's really acceptable because they would likely be thinking, yeah, of course, God chose Jacob over Esau for the continuation of God's promise to Abraham. That's something they would 
really be hard-pressed to deny. They're going to like this fact. Like, yeah, of course. Like, yeah, God picked us. Like, thank you, Lord. That's awesome. So they're going to have a hard time denying that. But later on, when Paul's making the point that the Old Testament teaches that not everyone born of Abraham is Abraham's seed, now they go, wow, this is like Old Testament truth. So he's, uh, he's kind of coming in the back door to, to, to teach them New Testament theology with Old Testament theology. Um, I want to take a minute, though, before we move forward um, and just give you a few reasons to think, uh, does God love everyone? Uh, does God actually love everyone? Because this is this Esau hated thing. I think I've already given grounds to say that it's not a hatred of Esau in that sense. It's a selection of a nation, um, one over the other. But 1 John 4, 8 and 16, that tells us that God is love. I mean, it's, just, it's literally an inherent part of his nature. We're never told that God is hate. He just is love. It's like his default position is love. In Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God was loving me while I was a sinner. In John three sixteen, it says, For God so loved the world, and I take that at face value. I mean, that seems to be telling us he loves the world. In Matthew 5, 44, it says, But I say to you, love your enemies. Jesus says, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Here's a question. Do you think God requires you to love people he doesn't love? He says, love your enemies. Do you think God does not love his enemies? But it can be more complicated than just that, can't it? God has a love for all people, but that doesn't mean that everyone's going to be saved because God is also a just judge. Psalm 711 says God is angry with the wicked every day. Wait, I thought you loved me. How can you be angry with me? Have you had children? <laughs> you can love someone and be angry with them at the same time. Psalm 5.5, 5, it says, The boastful shall not stand in your sight, and you hate all workers of iniquity. There is a, a despising or hatred that goes alongside, even though God does love them. How could he love and hate them? I want you to imagine if you had two children, and one child, as they grow up, become adults, one kills the other. Do you still love that child? Do you hate that child? Do you have some complicated feelings towards that child? And I think God has God is capable of complicated thinking. <laughs> Surprise! And that's how the Bible seems to seems to uh, dictate it. And there's a nearby verse in Romans eleven twenty eight that tells us something along these lines. It says, "Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers." Somehow there, there's this complex relationship of these unsaved Jewish people. They're, they're enemies for the sake of the gospel, but they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. There's, it's, com- it's complicated. It is complicated. Um, and the cross becomes the turning point. At the cross, you can, then, you can then shed yourself of all the issues that would cause you to be separated from God and just enjoy his love. That makes, that makes perfect sense to me. Personally, I do not struggle with this issue. Um, how can God... Does he love the sinner and, and hate the sinner? Does he love the sinner or hate the sinner? And I'm like, well, both. It's complicated. I mean, this is this is a complicated issue. And again, just have some kids and you'll figure it out. <laughs> um, verse 14, let, let's, let's read on. Verse 14 of Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Um, This is, again, in Calvinism, they're going to take this perspective, not of him who wills. It's taken to mean that you don't make a free will decision to put your trust in Christ. 
Not of him who wills means that you never have any will choice that's made, free will choice that's made to get saved. Um, this is why in Calvinist theology, regeneration, that's when you're born again, you have a new, a new heart, a new life, and the Holy Spirit's inside you. That happens first, and then you put your faith in Jesus. Because they look at even your faith as a response to God saving you, not faith as the thing that gives you access to salvation by faith that you are saved. Um, and, and, and to be honest, this is where, when I was learning about Calvinism years and years ago, this is where they first started losing me on, on it. I was like, oh, when you say regeneration happens in a backwards order, that, that's really confusing to me. I think, you're, I think maybe you're just confused, and that's why you're confusing me, because <laughs> sometimes that happens. Um, so let me, let me quote to you Romans 10, verses 2 and 3. This is what I think it means when it says, not of him who wills. It's not about free will choice to receive Christ. No, no, no. Because he says, it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs. These things go together. Romans 10, verses 2 and 3. This is the one who's willing and running. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. This is, this is why many of the Jews were not receiving Christ. Because they were trying to, through their zeal, him who wills, and through their works, him who runs. They were trying to establish righteousness, but it doesn't come through that. It just comes through faith. Faith is not seen as this great, powerful, zealous act of the will. I mean, you're just believing in Jesus. It's nothing to boast about. That's kind of the whole point, is that you have no boasting. So who wills, I think, speaks of zeal, not faith. Otherwise, it contradicts the next two chapters and the rest of the book. Because Romans 9 is going to even continue at the end of the chapter. It's going to say, but Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. Why didn't they get righteous? Because they didn't seek it by faith. But if the point of Romans 9 was to say, hey, not of him who wills, you don't make a free will choice to believe in Jesus, then why would it, why would it then conclude they're not saved because they didn't have faith? It should say, we conclude they're not saved because God didn't regenerate them. That would be the conclusion. This is where I think, I think Calvinism is not consistent with Romans 9. Um, I think as you carefully study the text. So mercy is the point. It's not, I will save by regeneration. Boom, you're regenerated. It's rather, I will save by mercy. And mercy is the cross. Mercy is, I'm going to put my faith in Jesus. That's how I'll be saved. Not through obedience to the law. Simply through what Jesus has done for me. Mercy. That's what God has chosen. So with that in mind, let me read again verses 14 through 16. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Why would he be accused of unrighteousness? Because look at these people, Israel. I thought we had these promises. I thought we had all these things going on. Lord, what's wrong? Why aren't you, why aren't you bringing us into all these blessings and giving us all these things? What's going on? Um, no, not true. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. Establishing that the, the whole idea of God blessing people was going to be based on mercy, not based on their works. And I will have compassion on whoever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. God who shows mercy. Verse 17, it says, For the scripture says to, to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. And again, this is one of those verses. You, if, if someone tells you the doctrines of Calvinism and then you read this passage, you go, that's looking pretty pretty strong. I mean, that's like, dude, he hardens you? He gives you mercy? 
that's that's it right there. Um, but this has an explanation that doesn't involve Calvinism. And first off, it's realizing that what Paul is doing, and it might feel wishy-washy to you, but this is what he's doing in the passage, is he starts by talking about God's choosing for promises. Not for salvation, but for choosing a people to be the descendants of Abraham. How it's not based on just their blood, how it's not based upon their works, but it's simply based on God's choice. And this is to establish a grounding for the gospel that will come later so that you will understand it's by God's mercy and by God's grace that you will be saved. His choice towards the gospel is mercy. But then you get to verse 17. The scripture says to Pharaoh, again, for this very purpose I raised you up. And then it talks about how God hardens. Um, this, there's, a, there's a term for this. It's called judicial hardening. Judicial hardening. And the idea is that God hardens people as an act of judgment against them. He doesn't harden them arbitrarily. And the passage doesn't say that. It says he, he, he has mercy on who he wills, and he, and he hardens whom he wills. But it doesn't say he has mercy arbitrarily for no reason. You people, you're saved. And you people, you're hardened just because. It just says that that's his will, and he's going to do that. But it's a judicial hardening that happens to Pharaoh. And read the passage, and you can see this. Pharaoh, in fact, hardens his own heart in Exodus chapter 8, verse 15, 32, and 34. Three times, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. It says it. He's the active agent hardening his own heart. And God also hardens Pharaoh's heart. God's also an active agent hardening Pharaoh's heart. So it's not like God's on the sidelines just watching things happen. He's engaged. He's active. But it's a judicial hardening. But what you can do is you can complain about God and say, But God, you put Pharaoh in that position. I mean, really, you didn't have to let Pharaoh be the Pharaoh. It could have been some other guy. Some totally different guy who wouldn't have had a hard heart. And for that, you could say, God, you're, in, you're unjust. God, you're unjust for, for putting us in such positions as this. Like, God, it was that woman that you gave me. And he's just blaming everybody except himself. Um, but that, of course, falls flat. Um, so let's, let's read Exodus chapter 9, verses 13 through 16. What I want to do is just read the passage where it talks about um, this, this very thing. About how God raised up Pharaoh and about how this, how this went down. So we can understand Paul's point. He assumes that you know these things, right? As he writes, he assumes you're familiar with the Old Testament and we really want to strive to be. So Exodus 9, 13, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now, if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this purpose, I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. There's two options here that God gives us in Exodus 9. He says, Pharaoh, I could have just struck you dead for all your sins, but instead, I'm going to strike you with plagues slowly so that I can glorify myself in your name. So when it says raised you up, it's as though the other option was just slaughtering you outright. Because you're evil. Because you deserve it. So the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is a judicial hardening. It's, he's, he's deserves it. This connects later with um, Romans 9.22 when it talks about how God endures with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He let them live longer and he decided to bring glory from their uh, from their things. 
the things that they went through. I, now, I don't. I also think that hardening doesn't necessarily mean damnation. We assume that every every choice in Romans nine is a choice for salvation or damnation, but that's not the passage. Um, so God chose him for a purpose that God's name would be declared. Interestingly enough, when they enter into the promised land and they meet and they go to Jericho and they meet Rahab, she hears about what God did to Egypt, and because of this, she ends up getting saved. So God is using Pharaoh judging. All that hardening his heart, all these things are going on, but he's doing it and using it to evangelize Rahab way over there, you know, on the other, uh, on the other plane in the other nation. So what is Paul's point, though, when he, when he talks about um, uh, all these things, about Pharaoh being hardened and stuff like that? So I think his point is one, not all of Israel are guaranteed the fullness of the blessings that come to Israel. Number two, um, not only that, but God judicially hardens people. And they can't argue because he uses Pharaoh as the example. Of course, the Jews can be like, yeah, Pharaoh's God. You deserve that, Pharaoh. Like, God hardened your heart, evil Pharaoh. But what if God's judicially hardening some of Israel? That's what Paul's kind of bringing them to, to show them Old Testament grounding for a New Testament reality. God is, God is hardening some of Israel right now. And he'll get into why they're hardened in chapter 10. And it's not because God simply arbitrarily decides, I'm going to harden you for no reason. It's because they did not receive Christ. They didn't choose the path of mercy that God gave them, which was Jesus. Then in verse uh, 19, we'll get to a little further. We're not going to finish Romans 9 today. Um, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? Another complaint. Um, Yeah, God raised up Pharaoh in the first place. Again, God, God, God not only raised up Pharaoh, he planned Pharaoh's rebellion against him. So, isn't that kind of God's fault? This is, this is what it's saying. That even if man really has free will, God still made man knowing that we had free will and knowing the choices that you'd make. So aren't those choices his fault? Why did God put that tree in the garden in the first place if he knew they were going to eat of it? And this sort of thing. Um, the idea is this. Let's blame God for our sins. That's what it comes down to. Why does he still find fault? Because who resisted his will? These are the sneaky catch-22 situations that, um, that often skeptics try to bring up. And they're not new, guys. This is 2,000 years ago. This is being written. This is connected, I think, to something Paul said earlier in Romans. In Romans 3, verses 5 and 6, Paul handled a similar accusation. Let me read it to you. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God when he judges us, it shows his righteousness even through our unrighteousness. What shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man or an idiot. <laughs> and then he says, certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? See, this is the conclusion. If I go, God, if you're ultimately sovereign, and if you're ultimately spinning everything into, into place, and even though you let us make free will choices, you let us make those choices like you had some plan, some will in allowing it, so it's on you, God. What's the conclusion? The conclusion is then God can't judge anybody for anything. You're just trying to tie the hands of the Almighty? Good luck with that on Judgment Day. So though this is not Calvinism, it is still a very high view of God's sovereignty. God could have just not made me if he didn't want me to do things I do and act the way I am. The phrase, like, if God didn't want so many gay people, why did he make so many gay people? And I thought, well, if God didn't want so many rapists, why did he make so many rapists? So now it makes God the author of all evil that you can find. But here's the answer. Here's the answer, verse 20, and it's an interesting answer. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? 
Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? The answer is this, who do you think you are? Like, I get it that you're struggling with something. I get it that you can't understand something. But do you honestly think you're right and God's wrong? You think that's a real possibility? There are people who are angry at God because of perceived issues with God that God allowed or didn't allow, caused or didn't stop or whatever. And they're mad at God and they're shaking their fist at God. And they can't wait. I've heard people say it. I, well, when I die, I've got a few questions for God. And I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. You are not going to stand before the Almighty and have like accusations against him. You'll be like Job. Where he just says, like, I was a fool. What was I thinking? I, I spoke of things I didn't understand. That's the bottom line is this. There is no place for attacking or arguing against God. There is a place for understanding him. But what rational human being can think, I'm more right than God? Like, this is the height of foolishness in my mind. Like to th- it, Look, if, if you go, as I look at the world, it seems like God really messed up. Is it possible that you're just confused? That maybe you're just wrong and God's right? Like, you ever have, you know, these little kids, they come up to you and they're like, well, da 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 and they can't understand why you think this and they disagree and you're just like, you know, kiddo, maybe you should just trust that I've got like eight times more life experience than you. Just, just take my word for it, you know, until you figure it out. I think that applies so much more with the Lord. Um, so much more. Well, we're, we're, we're actually running out of time. So what we're going to do is next week, I, I wanted to do all of nine in one week, but I knew this wasn't going to happen. Um, so next week, what we're going to do is we'll pick up right here, right here where it's like about the potter and the clay. Does not the potter have power? And is this, is this the doctrine of election regarding Calvinism? All that sort of thing. And I'm going to offer my explanation of why I don't think it is. Um, and hopefully that'll help. But what we'll do is we'll pray. And then I want to take your guys' questions. And as I said, if there's something you're like, can you explain that? Or I don't think you answered this issue in the text. I want you to bring that to me, even if all I can say is I don't know uh, to the answer. I still want that to come out. So let's pray. Father, we, um, we're excited uh, to dig into challenging passages and challenging uh, texts, um, especially ones where we can discuss and have like a friendly, loving debate on the issues. And we, we pray for wisdom on it. Lord, we pray for wisdom. Let us not just pick a camp and... Um, and fight for it, but rather, Lord, let us be committed to the truth of the scriptures and um, and have some humility that maybe we're understanding things incorrectly even even now. And so, Lord God, we, we ask for wisdom. We pray for clarity. We pray for understanding. Lord, we know we know though that that what you're teaching here is that all that you've done through Christ and all that has happened, it is according to the teachings of even the Old Testament that has always been the plan, and that. Um, that your love for Israel and your heart towards them, like Paul's heart for their salvation, is still available through the mercies of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, we pray for Israel, we pray for, for, um, for Jewish people around the world right now, that they would come more and more to the Messiah, to the fullness of all the things that you've given them, Lord. They'd see through some of the rabbinical Judaism, the, the teachings they've got from rabbis, and go back to the text itself. Lord, we pray that they'd see the wisdom that there is in Romans. And the truth there is in Messiah. In Jesus' name, amen.